right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Boombastic Cast. And there ain't quite anything as American as that, except for maybe one thing, American Splendor. You know what I mean? The Paul Giamatti, uh, Masterpiece of Independent Cinema of Art, you know, on uh, Harvey P. Carr. You know, the the, the cartoonist, graphic novelist, if you will, uh, of American Splendor, uh, you know, masterpiece of a film you know what i mean we got our friend toby radloff uh which was a part of the film and new harvey uh joining us in a little bit for the show um toby is a legendary dude within himself you know what i mean from the killer nerd films he's working on mtv you know the genuine nerd documentary classic stuff toby's the man very close friend of the boombastic folk uh he's been a part of two christmas specials i believe and uh, always an all-around good dude, you know what I mean? Always good to have Tobe on the show. Uh, yeah, definitely. Alex, I know you're a big fan of Paul Giamatti. Oh, uh, I, I, I love Paul. Uh, uh, hopefully one of these days get a chance to actually talk to him and uh, express how much I, I, I love him. Um, what I love is about American Splendor, which I think really um makes it stand head heads above a lot of other independent films yeah is the fact that you'll have a movie like for example Aaron Brockovich about yeah. a real person and then you'll have Julia Roberts in a dining scene with the real Aaron Brockovich playing a waitress but in this i mean you had the real Harvey Pecord, you had the real Toby Radloff yeah. in there. Real Harvey Pecord, I mean, does the narration as as the narrator of the piece. While yeah. you had, you know, Paul Giamatti going through the motions. Uh, you also got actual footage of you know him on David Letterman, which is another thing I appreciated. Yeah. I mean, other than the very last one where they they cheated it so. It, it was definitely looks like behind the scenes and you see, you know, Paul Giamatti playing Harvey Pequod talking to a David Letterman, uh, uh, person playing David Letterman. Yeah. But what I, I, I appreciate is that this is a film that is about someone who's real. Yeah. Who, that they actually actively bring him into the story itself. I mean, it's his story. Right. And that's one thing I really appreciated about it because uh, so many other people could just go with, well, we got Paul Giamatti, we got Judah Freelander, they'll play the roles and we'll play it as a regular narrative biopic and we'll go from there. But, yeah. uh, I mean, seeing uh, Harvey B. Court's wife and then, of course, the retirement scene at the end, it was nice to actually feel like those that the story was about actually had, you know, had something to say, actually was a part of the film other than, well, this is our story, but we're not a part of the actual production of this film. Right. Yeah. Where I mean, that? that's one of the things I really appreciate about the movie. I mean, I love, uh, I love uh, Paul Giamatti and Judah Freelander both did great jobs in this film. Mm. But uh, having the actual Harvey Pequod narrated, I thought was a stroke of genius. 
Have a, yeah, they had the way they didn't have EP car. Uh, it's quite a like. Uh, I remember like this movie popping off at what was like early two thousand, two thousand three, of course, because we got twenty twenty three twentieth anniversary. Yeah. Um, like I remember, it was a big deal. Independent arts that year going off. So I believe it took awards at Sundance and such, and that was kind of like a good era. That was around the time that I was like attempting to get into film. So like all those art films that came about were catching my eye, you know, all those films that were Sundance who were all catching my eye and catching my attention. I feel like that was like probably around the birth, probably the really first big starring role for Giamatti. I could be wrong. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, we'll all, I mean, people will always say sideways is the movie that really, Put Paul Giamatti, like I would say, in the forefront of people's minds. Yeah, but American Splendor, I think, was the definitely. If it was in the first, it was definitely the first notable film that he was in. Him playing pig vomit in Howard Stern's private parts, at least for me, being a comedy fan and a fan of the radio show, that was big for me. I I always took note of him because he was so great in that role of uh, pig vomit. You know, Stern's boss played it perfectly. But I got Gmod. He was also in Lady in the Water around this time, I think. When which kind of the film wasn't that fantastic, but it kind of it was a big move. Every, everybody went to go see it because it was like a, I think it might have been the first kind of almost disappointment from Night Shyamalan. But it was a lot of people went to go see it. Maybe the Village was. I don't know. They were right around the same. Well, the part. Village came out first. A lot. Of, here's the thing about M Night Shyamalan. I I enjoy his work. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying everything he does is 100% great. Okay. I actually enjoyed The Village. A lot of people gave it shit because... <laughs> I enjoyed it, yeah. It, it turned out that it wasn't, you know, a monster. It was actually this guy dressed up, you know, which actually I think it was... It's a very you thought it was going to be. And if anyone's watched anything that M. Night Shyamalan has done, they should expect kind of the rug being pulled under... But I think a lot of people were upset that they were expecting a monster movie and they got a more of a uh, a personal society drama about, you know, the failings of the society we live in right now. Which, yeah. and if you look at it that way, I liked it. I thought it was really well done. Honestly, best performance of Bryce uh, Dallas Howard, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well... He didn't have he didn't have a big career, right? Then he he wasn't in for a little bit. Is he still kicking? He's still going now. Yeah, he did. Uh, uh, there's a movie coming out now, uh, like Knock on the Cabin. Has, yeah, that's M Night Shyamalan. Yeah, that's M Night Shyamalan. Oh, yeah. what about the actor, the Bryce Howard? You were talking about? Oh yeah, Dallas Bryce Howard. Yes, yeah, she's Ron Howard's daughter. She's the one doing all the Jurassic Park movies. Oh, so I guess she's doing all right. Yeah, she's doing all right, but. Doing right. We're talking about acting. See, see. I mean, most of the films I've seen her in, I don't think she's really stressed herself as an actress. I thought yeah. in the Village, she did a good job actually being an actress. Um, I mean, you watch the Jurassic Park movies; they're they're laughable. I mean, it's, I mean, Chris Pratt and and Bryce Dallas Howard. Nothing against them. I I. Could not believe anything that they do in that in the in that series. Yeah, I believe more. I believe Chris Pratt more as Star Lord than I do as his character in the Jurassic Park movies. Word. Well, that's pretty big of you to say, my friend. That's pretty big of you to say. You know what I mean? 
Just saying. Just. Well, well, we can almost end this episode with news like that. You know what I mean? But <laughs> we're not going to do that. We're going to carry on. We're going to find the strength to carry on forward. We're going to get into some American Splendor. You know what I mean? We're going to get some fantastic stuff getting down. If you're yeah. not a fan of the film, this might not be your cup of tea. If you've never seen the film, go see the film. You'll like it. Um, it's a good flick. The the formatting of fil- like your typical storytelling um, formula is kind of, you know, they move away from that, which I got to appreciate. Uh, whenever a film does that, I always take note. Like you were saying before about the mixing, the swapping up of character and real people. I thought it was really well done. And, uh, yeah, for shizzle. Well, so I, I get, yeah. yeah I, I mean, it's actually funny if you think about it. That I think American Splendor is definitely one of the best comic book movies out there. And, of course, I mean, I know that... I mean, a, a lot of people probably don't even think of it or, or, or consider it, but I mean, the entire American Splendor comic book is pretty much Harvey Pequod, you know, talking about his life, yeah. you know, and that's what he does in the movie. And and the fact is that uh, if you want to get you know even more artistic yeah. about, I mean. Harvey Pequod, you know, he wrote the stories, but he had an uh, illustrator, you know, draw it out, il- uh, draw out the pictures, because he himself, he could only do, like, stick figures. He wasn't a great artist, but he was a good storyteller. R. Crumb. And, yeah, R. Crumb did, 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 the, did the illustration. But um, if you look at this, look at this film as kind of an extension of the comic book. Yes. Right? He's narrating. He's narrating the story, but you have Paul Giamatti as the illustration of him. So, in essence, it is a live-action comic book uh, telling. I think it's really good. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It is a comic book movie making Harvey Pekar a superhero in his own thing. A superhero like the type of dude that would mute his phone, turn down the volume on his phone or his computer, that type of superhero stuff. Um, it'd be fantastic. <laughs> so with that, without any further ado, we was about to bring Toby Radloff into the Boombasticast, I think to our show for the very first time at the BBC, but he's been all over the Boombastic Media Network and uh, definitely a friend of the show and a friend of the family and by golly, almost a family member himself. If I would be so bold to say such a thing, um, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Toby Radloff. Woo! And I just clicked got it. We done got it. Toby, yeah. always a pleasure got to it. see you. Always a pleasure to see you. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks, Alex. No, we were just talking about records. I, I could go on for days about record talk. I know. Toby could as well, but I know Alex could not. You know, so we'll, <laughs> we'll be kind uh, to Alex. Yes. Unfortunately, I am um, uh, record illiterate. <laughs> it's okay, it's all right. We'll get you there. We'll fix you up. Um, we'll get get you to good position. But we've gathered here today to talk about a film. Toby was uh, heavily a part of it. He was a part of the film, but the, the gentleman that you know it was based on, Harvey Picar was 
just like legendary status, you know what I mean? Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore to kind of tell the story. If I can't believe it's been 13 years since he passed. Yeah, very sad. But, you know, he's a super talented dude. The American Splendor graphic novel, is, as, as well as many other... He was all, himself was also a collector of records, which I appreciate. Yeah. I mean, a lot of records I have gotten from Harvey. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, Harvey, Harvey used to sell records at the V-Day Hospital like the, some of the co-workers, but a lot of the records he was selling were like R&B and jazz stuff because that was what Harvey was pretty much into. Yeah. Yeah, he's... He used to write for like Downbeat Magazine and other jazz publications and then he also, you know, I thought he also had like a gig with Verve Records which used to be part of MGM but I think it became part of Polygram or, or was now Universal Music Republic Records. Yeah. And he was like writing liner notes for jazz albums in the few years before he passed away for Bird Records. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I, I knew he, you know, with the film and such, I knew he was a big, big in the records. But you guys met at work, like at work, right? Yes. I got hired at the VA in December of 1980, and that was where I first met Harvey. Now I'm in my 42nd year there, and eventually I'm going to be planning my retirement. I picture picture a scene like in the movie with cake, you know what I mean? Yes. And that was shot in the actual place? It was shot actually, most of the scenes were shot at Lakewood Hospital, which is a hospital in Lakewood, Ohio, and they filmed it in the file there, mainly because one, the VA would not allow the film crew in there at the VA hospital. Yeah. And two, at that time, the record was moving from one location to another, and it was in a building that was recently opened after, you know, being under construction for a few years, like an addition to the building, and they moved the medical records to the basement there. And this was like also around the time that they were getting ready to phase out paper medical records in favor of medical records being online. Yeah. Because yeah. so the, the paper medical records are sort, sort of like on viral time by the time the record moved. And they get, do they get rid of the, uh, you know, y'all, you, you can't, you can't save the records in music, you know, that you can't just let it all be digital because if one day that digital was to go away, where's the music and where are the files? You know, right. I mean? and, and don't count on the cloud if you know what I mean. Never. Yeah, I'd say if, if some, if, say if a nuclear war should happen, it's bye bye everything. There'll be a different including, cloud you're going to worry about at that point. Everyone's record collections and everyone's music in the cloud. If you had a rec- good record collection and a nuclear war happened, you might be able to s- surround yourself with enough vinyl that if the heat hits it r- the right way, it will melt into a cube, protecting you from the nuclear stuff. It could work. No. It's almost possible. And I'll try to shield the two iPods I have and the hard drive that I have the music on. To keep that preserved. Yeah. Yeah, I'm all for pres- the preserving. You were t- talking about how you like to kind of do that, do the 
uh, the system where you take the vinyl and put it on MP3 format for like yeah, I got like a like an Ion turntable that I have hooked to the computer. The Ion is sort of like a step above a Crosley. Yeah, this one's got like a 12-inch platter on it rather than the little platter on the Tuzer. And I've used this thing for about six or seven years to copy 33s, 45s, and 78s over the iTunes. But with the 78s, I use like an odd, I think they call it Audacity. That's the name of the program. Yeah. And I would play the 78 at 45 RPM because it's only a 33 and 45 turntable. And then I would use the Audacity to change the speed back to 78 when I put it on iTunes. Okay. okay. That's way more in, involved than I thought it was. I thought it, it was pretty much involved. Because used to be, I used something called Easy Vinyl and Tape Converter, mm. which automat- sort of like automatically put it onto iTunes. But apparently Apple changed their iTunes software so the Easy Vinyl Tape couldn't directly copy it. I'd have to go through a few more steps to put it on the iTunes. It was like also like around the time that Apple was phasing out iPods in favor of iPhones and i iPhones and 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 iPads. Yeah. They they probably just want you to pay more money than they let you do it. It's probably one of those deals. Yes, because it says iTunes is still around. I mean I could still copy music, but it said it's like a few more steps, and it's been like a few years since I actually put a record on the iTunes, and then the other, and then the Ion the also had like a auxiliary jack on it, and I hooked a Sony Walkman to it, yeah. and I used the copy cassettes uh, onto yeah. the iTunes. Crafty, crafty. And it sounds yeah. good? This stuff, the I record will sound I good? The, I had like a cable I hooked between the the ox jack and the turntable and the Walkman to do that. Hmm. And it, when you when you convert it over, it'll sound good or it sounds sounds good. Yeah, I just have to make sure I got fresh batteries. Yeah. In the in the Walkman in order to do it. Word. Word. It's one. And it was a better model. It was a better model of Sony Walkman. So it did come out good. I remember when the Sony Walkman hit the streets, it was one of the biggest things of all time. You had the yellow sport one and you had yeah. the regular one. Yeah. That was big. Then the the Sony Discman, which was like everybody wanted them, but they were so terrible. Like you, if you move them a little bit, like the CD skips, it was like awful. Yeah. yeah. Like this is actually what I use. Hell yeah. And this is like the little cable I hooked up to it. Like a little boy. cable I hooked up to it to hook it, hook it to the turntable. Yeah, I got an old one here too. Yeah, this is like this is like first generation Sony Walkman type yeah. deal. I don't know. This, what's I, going think, on this one I think is from like the nineties. Yeah, still works. Yeah, it's got the W. I got the W on this. Yeah, I got the W on my Discman from back in the day. Yeah, it looks yeah. like one from a thrift shop. That Walkman. That disc man. Yeah, it's so surprising. Like the di- the disc man and the the whole walking CD player thing was like you had to like walk with it. I remember having to walk with it like 
almost like within your hand. It couldn't be at the angle or anything, or it would like have issues. At least mine would. Yeah, it would. Uh, right, but it's a if then again, it's cumbersome to carry CDs and cassettes with you. Yeah. And so, like when you're walking with an iPod, you don't have to worry about like the one that I have is like a 64 gigabit unit. Yeah, yeah. Holds like 17,000 songs. <laughs> yeah, I had a I had an iPod. iPod. I just do like Spotify nowadays, but I, I had an iPod for a while. I haven't updated mine. Every time I get a phone, I should probably put my, cause I have so much music, but, uh, yeah, we'll see. There's an eventually like with my iPhone, I eventually got to get rid of all the duplicates cause I had like my, cause one time I accidentally erased my hard drive. I had like Ooh. an external hard drive that I had the, uh, songs on it accidentally erased it. And there was like a program that I downloaded that allowed me to transfer music from the iPod back onto the hard drive. Yeah. I did that and I I copied the music from the two iPods that I have. You know, one's like a first generation that had the wheel on it, you know, the round control and the other's a iPod touch. Yeah, that's a 64 gig unit. And I copied the music that was on both of those iPods. And then what I gotta do, it's gonna take like maybe a couple days for me to do it. Just sitting all day to get rid of all the duplicate songs. And I never really got around to doing it. So I'm just basically leaving the songs alone that are on the two iPods right now. Yeah. Well, be, be careful with that because I had an issue with the iPod once where I got duplicates. And yeah. they all played, and I went through and I deleted the duplicate side. And then when I went back to the album, I'd only I deleted some of the good good songs somehow. So like the, the album would be incomplete where it'd be the gaps, you know what I mean? Which was unfortunate, and I yeah. lost songs. Yeah, that sucked. Yeah, that, then I got to be careful because I want to make sure that I have the song. You know, I mean, the song could still be on the hard drive, but I'm just getting rid of the dupes on the iTunes on the screen. Yeah. As long as it, it won't erase it from the hard drive. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, that's the thing. Because I, the thing, I, the issue I had, and I had, a, I had a lot of CDs that I used to like shoot underground hip hop and rock shows in our city. So like yeah. a lot of those bands that it, it, you don't really, you can't get that stuff. I had like all that stuff on CD at some point and I put it on, I, I, got, a, I got half of it in the physical form. And then all of it was on digital, but uh, I think some of it got broken up, which was very sad. But I guess I admit, like a lot of the songs that I have on there, I had downloaded from a pirate site years ago. Back with like LimeWire? This was what I I don't remember the name of it, but it was a, I like basically looked up. All of the Billboard Hot One, the top 100 songs of the year, every year, like from I did it like from 1955 all the way to 1990. Yeah, because that's sort of like my range with the music I'm growing up with. Because I'm not really much in the songs beyond 1990, considering my age. Although a lot of good music came from that era. Yeah, but as I said, you know. One t- the one program I used put a virus on my computer. And I have a friend. I had to have a friend of mine clean it up. 
Yeah. And then I found like another one that did not put a virus on. And that was the one that I used to copy the songs from 55 to 90. And then I had like record some of them from my record collection because sometimes they would use either recorded versions or the song would not play in full. That was like the whole like digital that, you know, Napster and LimeWire. That's like 20 years old nowadays now for crying out loud. And it would, you'd get bit, dude, with some virus for real. You know, I know it's, yeah. it's funny because we, 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 I know with me and I don't know if Alex ever did the Napster and stuff like that or the LimeWire, but I would always go on and grab music. And it was so different when you were like a kid and like when you make the art later in life and you're like, Oh, I guess that was like not cool to. <laughs> try and uh, get that. Yeah, I think I downloaded uh, a few things from... Uh, I think everybody the- did. Uh, Maybe not so much music with Alex, but it's... Um... <laughs> funny, funny. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I did download it. I mean, uh, I, mean uh, I, I don't have anything against music, even though uh, Matt will tell everyone I like uh, the hate joke. Music. I like the uh, joke. But, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, I just... Uh, I used to collect a lot of like soundtracks of musicals, that kind of stuff. Um, just kind of fell out of that. Just, I mean, like the old saying goes, like uh, with Mad, that you know you have to pick and choose what you collect because yeah. if you collect everything, you don't have money for food. And you look like <laughs> me. And you look like my background. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Considering how oh, many well, years I've collected records, I mean. I know to watch my money, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because I don't want to spend all my money on records only to find that I have no money to buy groceries. Yeah. Would you ever... And I don't want to put groceries on the credit card. Yeah. Yeah. I was also dealing with credit card debt at the time. Yeah. Would you you sell? Would you ever sell the collection? Uh... I then, I, if I have to end up in a nursing home or an assisted living, yeah. I may have to sell or donate. I mean, I'd sell the good stuff and donate the rest. That's some classic stuff. Yeah. No. I do have a lot of, I do have like a number of records in there that are worth money. Oh, yeah. Heck yeah. You could do a Toby drive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'd be, yeah. That'd be cool. I could see Toby hosting. Like a record show. That would be cool. That'd yeah. be really cool. Yeah. Maybe uh, in the future. Uh, so now you and Harvey got you guys kinda linked up with the with with digging on records. You guys were both big fans of records. Yeah, we went to flea markets, we went to thrift stores, we went to library sales, because Harvey often bought books from estate sales, library sales, flea markets. Yeah. Thrift stores, and then he would resell them. He used to go to this place in Kent that would buy these, that would buy books from him. And then the other place, I think, was up in Illyria that bought a lot of his, a lot of the paperbacks he found. Yeah, that there was neither of those bookstores are there now. I remember those, the one in Kent later became a Starbucks. Yeah. Oh, coffee! People love coffee, and I, and I think Starbucks later. And I don't remember. I don't know what's in that building now, but I knew it was in a building that had English two door decorum outside of it. Yeah, 
Harvey was an originator of a field of work that nowadays, I don't really like nowadays. And the, the field of work I'm talking about is where, and, and Toby, I'm sure I can feel this. You go into like a, thir- like a thrift store, a savers, you're looking for good stuff. You'll see people with their phone and they're scanning stuff and they don't want it themselves, but they know if they can get money for it, they're going to buy it. And I hate that because it kills the p- collector. You know what I mean? And then also, uh, like with other things, yeah, people want to buy stuff because they don't have that much money. Yeah, and also because of these, you know, people that resell, the thrift stores realize that, and they try to put eBay pricing on a lot of their items. Yeah, we're talking say like twenty bucks for a piece of Pyrex. Yeah, like for an old Pyrex. You know, like for an old Pyrex crock pot or something yeah. that used to sell for maybe two or three bucks is now going for like 20 bucks at the Goodwill. Uh, that's, they make crack with the Pyrex cookware, I believe. That's why they, like for real, I always hear the rappers talking about their Pyrex. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I, yeah, that, that, and maybe that's why Savers up their price because they knew what they're dealing with. You'd, I'd go there in the morning sometimes and you'd see people with the, with the scanning books. Because that's the beauty of being a collector is like you go in there, you find something that either you've been looking for forever or you find something that you might not have been looking for forever, but you know this thing goes for like a hundred bucks online and here it is for a buck and you could like, you, you definitely like it now. You know what I mean? You get it and you're like, oh, victory for the day. And then you see a dude going, whoop, oh, I can get money for that. All right, whoop, that, nah, that, no money for that. Put that back, whoop, get money for that. And it like, they were like pillaging the drain. They're, pull, they're basically picking the lower hanging fruit, if you know what I mean. Yeah, for sure. It's sad. It was. It was very. I remember it being. Like they're very picking like, the best fruit, and they're leaving the rot, the other stuff to rot. You know, it, it, it really. You know, it's unfortunate because I think savers and stuff like that. You, you know, I used to get excited. Like you drive by a savers or something, you go, "Yeah, man!" Like there's very possibly I'm going to go in here and find something incredible. And nowadays, it gets smaller and smaller the opportunity of that I mean, because of especially. You know, like I know the savers in my area on Monday, everything is half price. Oh, and you'll probably find them all coming in on Monday to do that stuff. Even though Cleveland only has three savers. Yeah, we savers only gives us a couple half off. You got every Monday. We only got a couple off a year, I think. Yeah, every Monday. That's the three stores are in Cleveland. I think it's in ones in ones in the city of Cleveland, ones in Rocky River, and the others. In Willowick. Savers was like one of my favorite stores because you had books, music, movies, anything, toys, like old toys. Um, I remember we had a paranormal, we got, we do have a paranormal show on the network. And I remember they were talking about how, and it kind of spooked me from secondhand stores for a little bit, how they were talking about curses mm-hmm. and how like items can have, you know, things traveling with them and it always made me think after the fact like oh like i've seen a lot of horror movies like this so maybe there's something to that you know right and then even like in my you know like even like in the 70s and 80s when i was thrifting yeah there was one time i went into a saint vincent de paul store they had like a box of records sitting on the floor it must have just come in from a donation it was like sitting like between you know the, the floor 
and employee only area. And I was looking through the box. I found an album by the Ronettes. It was in those boxes. I knew that the records there were selling for like a dollar a piece. Yeah. And I grabbed that Ronettes record out of the box. And here, some lady is yelling at me because I took the record out of the box. But then again, I went ahead, went to the register with it, paid the dollar with the record usually would sell for but I had a feeling that sometimes employees would go through the stuff before they even put it on the floor. Yeah. Like especially if it's things like records. I mean if a bunch of records get donated and they're sitting in the back room of a thrift shop, I wouldn't be surprised if the employees know people that we sell. Yeah. And they would go through all the stuff before it is even put out for, sure. for the public. I think so, yeah. I mean, you like, see, like, you got like 200 records, you put all the Beatles out, all the Stones out, all the Motown out, yeah, all the rock and roll out, and then leave the Herb Alpert, Mitch Miller, and Frank Sinatra for the public. Right. Yeah, I have a routine whenever I'm going through. Like, if I if I find something dirt cheap that I that I don't have, of course I grab it. But if I find something dirt cheap that I have, I always tell for brownie points. I always go and tell the purple cell, and I go, you know, you can get a lot more money for that record, right? Yeah, you know what I mean. And uh, it helps me out. I think it helps me. And out. oftentimes, I mean, I end up with duplicate records because sometimes I buy something only to realize I've already had a copy. But a lot of times, I would. The copy I find is in better shape than the one that I have had now. Yeah. So I keep the one that's in better shape and then redonate the old one. Yeah. Well, I'll give a I'll shout out Land of Electronics in East Bridgewater, Massachusetts. They're, 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 yeah. uh, they're, it's a good team over there. I like those boys. They're nice. But like that, that's a place, you know, I go, whenever I see a record that should be more, I'm like, Woo! I'm like raise it up. I remember I was at the flea not too long ago, and they had a uh, Helta Skelta record, which is from a underground hip hop uh, group that no longer performs. One of Sean Price. Was it like a cover of the Beatles song? It, it was. That's where the name comes from. Yeah, the the Beatles deal. But it was like a hip hop group, and the dude was selling it for like ten bucks, and that thing's like a hundred bucks online all day long. But I have one. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I got it at the flea market for like dirt cheap as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but yeah, I love the flea. I almost went there earlier today. You know what I mean? It's a good spot. So many yeah. treasures walking around. If you're going to like secondhand stores and uh, fleas and stuff, and you're not looking for records, what other type of stuff? You get into toys too, right? I love toys. Yeah, I mean, I'm not much into toys or games because I only got so much room in the apartment. Yeah, and I did have to get rid of a bunch of knickknacks. Yeah, they were just collecting dust. And get you a big shelf, big wall size shelf. Yeah I, yeah, I know, but as I said, a couple of years ago, I was to move in with my mother. Yeah. Because my mother was dealing with kidney failure. And I was like halfway in the process of moving to mom's house. And then mom passes away on New Year's Day of 2022. So I end up having to move the stuff that I had already moved to mom's house including all my records and books and DVDs yeah. back over to my apartment. 
excuse me, and as I said, it was, you know, sort of like hard on me, like with my knees and my back, taking those records up the stairs. I was like using shopping tags to take the records up and down. Well, I'll tell you now, if you ever need help again, you, we set this up ahead of time. I will go to Ohio and help you out with a big move or whatever you want to do. I mean, if I ever have, if I'm ever in a position of moving, I'll let you know. Let me know, man. And I'm this ain't that ain't no BS. I'm down for real. Listen, this will be, <laughs> be, be great. It'll be fun times. Right. That'd be good. That'd be good. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't see myself moving anytime soon, though. I move furniture for four summers. Wow. Yeah. That's me, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, me, like me being 65 years old, I mean, I still look younger than 65, but yeah. parts of my body are acting it. Acting it, I feel you. Yeah. Yeah, it's a crazy deal. Unfortunately, you know, that's how it goes. Yeah. Alex, mm-hmm. how you doing over there, bud? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So what, Harvey started adding you into his his comics. That was kind of like you were that friendly with was, him at yeah at the sh- at work and uh, yeah a lot of them were stories we told at work. I first appeared in number nine, American Splendor. That was when Harvey was still self publishing it, and <laughs> and this was and I was featured on the cover of that comic. Oh yeah, and. I think that came out in '83. As a now, as a collector, did you did you f- keep up with? Did you collect the comics he was releasing? Were you like interested? From I the- got like the whole run of his self-released books, and he did manage to finally give me a number one. Wow! Awesome. That's cool. Yeah, he did give me a number one later on. He gave me like everything from two up, but you know, later on he did. Man, to find the number one to give to me. You got friends that have like the whole run. About <clears throat> like the whole run of the self-published ones. That's awesome. That's crazy. That's a, <laughs> you know what I mean. I'm like awesome. No, I do it myself. It's all right. Sometimes it's needed. You know what I mean. That's the coffee is for. If you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, you gotta melt it down with some hot coffee. That's what I do. Yeah, lava lava. Warm coffee in this case because I made that cup half an hour ago. Yeah. Now, when he start when he started to kind of get successful with it, did the people in work kind of show him respect for it, or like they I know sometimes everything everyone did take notice. And as yeah. I said, the comic books got word of mouth. That's basically how Harvey ended up on David Letterman, and how I ended up on MTV. So, yeah, I wanted to get into that. I know that, you know, Harvey went on Letterman, and he has some of the most legendary interviews out there. If, you, if anybody hasn't seen them or heard them, I believe they're all on YouTube. I mean, definitely see the flick that they, they go into <laughs> at the end of the movie. There's some real-life footage from Letterman and him in the movie, but uh, they're out there. And, yeah, so, like, so MTV approached you from from you, the kind of the success of the comic. Yeah, they sent a camera crew to work, because of my work, to do something on Harvey. Harvey introduced me to the film crew, the yeah. MTV crew, and I appeared like in a number of scenes. I appeared like about three or four segments where a team from New York came in. Yeah. And then and then at a Superman convention, I met Wayne Allen Harold for the first time. 
Sisters back in 1988. You like because you, you were like an MTV VJ kind of deal for a little sort bit. Sort of, you know, I was like talking about how I felt genuine nerd, and then from there, Wayne Allen Harold did a number, and Mark Bosco did a number of segments that ran, you know, like I think between 80, 88 and early 1990s. Yeah, and then they ended, and then the last one was, I think, like early nine, like the summer of '91, when Killer Nerd came out. Hell yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah! Killer Nerd's classic. Now the MT that was a weird. I, before we leave the MTV thing, that was like a very interesting time with MV, MTV, like in the it, when they started to take off. And I always remember Daniel Johnston, the folk singer. He kind of came from that era too because they found him they see they they it was a music festival or something like that and like i think the, so yeah the camera yeah, crew there, yeah. used to be a, there used to be a thing because harvey lived near the coventry road area of cleveland heights ohio yeah and coventry is you know sort of like a hippie ultra liberal type area yeah it was, it was like probably more so in the 80s in the 70s and 80s than what it is now. You know, because I mean, like, Coventry today, you got like a number of vacant storefronts. Yeah, but it was yeah. like a hopping area, like a busy hopping area back in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And that was like the era where Harvey was doing a lot of his stories. Yeah. It was... I, do, do you have any idea what, like, the, the 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 Cleveland underground art scene was like at that time? Like, I, I assume he had to have been like a a big ball in the underground. They must have, you know, he must have been a forefront figure. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, he did. He did manage to get Robert Crumb to do some of his drawings. Yeah, our Crumb did stuff like Fritz the Cat and the Keep on Trucking guy. Yeah, our Crumb so met Harvey. And he, did, he met Crumb in the 60s at a garage sale. And that yeah. was like, that was like, you know, recreated in the movie. He liked Crumb worked well, for American yeah. Greetings at the time. And American Greetings is like a Cleveland-based greeting card company. And that was where Crumb worked. And Crumb lived in Cleveland at the time. And that was how him and Harvey met. And they both had a common life for jazz. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fun how music's tied you guys all together. It's very cool, you know what I mean? Yeah. Important. Um, that's how Crumb did a lot of parties. You know, that's why a lot of those original self-published American Splendor comics are worth money because of the Robert Crumb art. Yeah. Yeah, Crumb's a very interesting, cool character. He has a... Uh, Terry Zigoff, Zwigoff, I believe, did a uh, film called, a documentary on him called Crumb, which is very interesting. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, he's a unique dude. You know what I mean? So they team up and they start really hammering out. American Splendor, you know, fucking hammering huge. It's becoming breaking out of Cleveland, getting into the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Starts going on Letterman and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how long how long of a run was it before the film kind of came into a play? Do you remember? Uh, there was talk of doing an American Splendor movie going back to the late eighties. I think one like one proposal 
had Alan Sachs, who was the creator. One, of, I think he's one of the producers of Welcome Back, Cotter. Interesting. To do the movie, but that sort of fell by the wayside, and then there were like a couple other things that went by the wayside as well until, you know, Sherry Springer Berman and I think Robert Robert Polsini yeah. got involved with it, you know, HBO and the casting call came about two weeks before nine eleven oh one happened. Yeah. With all those earlier renditions, did you ever hear anything of a rumor of who would have played P- Harvey in like those earlier in, in films? Uh, not really. I knew that, you know, Paul Giamatti played him. For sure. But I'm, I don't know, you know, they, I think they wanted to have Steve play him at one point, but I don't remember. But I mean, Ghost World, Steve Buscemi did play a Harvey-like character. He did. Buscemi would have been actually incredible. Now that you yeah. say that, like, yeah, that would have and been I did meet Steve Buscemi up at Sundance, you know, during the screening. Yeah, how was Steve? Good guy? He's a nice guy, yeah. I always hear good things about Steve. That would have, yeah, that would have been a very interesting casting, and I think he would have done a great job. Paul did fantastic, you know. This is right around the time Paul was kind of really hitting the scene in a big way. He he was behind the scenes as a co-starring character, you know, like uh, for for a long time, not really quite the leading man, and then this kind of showed that he could do it, you know what I mean? That he had what it took, the chops. Yeah. You know, and they're like looking at actors to play me. And they ended up getting Judah Friedland, you know, stand-up comedian, and and you know he appeared like in small parts in a lot of movies. World and champion. They, yeah. And then you know Judah has this long, stringy hair, and these big glasses. I mean, that's what he looks like now. But he cut his hair and changed his glasses to look like me yeah. for the American Splendor movie. And then after the movie wrapped. Judah grew his hair back long back again. Yeah, yeah. This was—I like, mean, because Judah had that hippie-like look. He did, yeah. But they made him look nerdy. They made him look like me. I think there was like another actor. I don't remember his name, but he was like on a number of sitcoms and stuff. And I don't remember his name offhand, but they wanted to have him play me at one point as well. I don't recall his name, but Judah had the thing perfect, you know, down cat and perfect. Yeah. And Judah and I still keep in touch off and on, and he still looks back at playing in that movie. That was the first time I ever remember seeing Judah. It was right before, it was before 30 Rock, where when he did 30 Rock, it was like he blew up. But like, that was the first time I seen him, and he does an incredible job playing you. It's very charming and like, sincere and like lovable did you guys yeah. talk did he did he meet with you or did you guys talk yeah we met up at, we met at a restaurant up at the renaissance cleveland hotel when you were doing the casting yeah and it turned out he was a fan of my movies even before we even met Hell and yeah. he, was, he bought killer nerd and he saw all the old mtv stuff yeah so he was familiar with me even before he even met me yeah Oh yeah, that's what I like to hear, man. Yeah, I I feel like I think American Splendor probably popped on my radar, and then it, it probably roughly around the time of the Killer Nerd films too. I was trying to think of which one kind of came into my life first because 
they were like I was telling Alex before, like when when I first started realizing like I want to make films and like getting in there and seeing it was like right around that time, you know what I mean? Of like the early two thousands when I was like being stepping forward to do such things and that the movies from that era, especially the artistic ones, because it's kind of more so like what I want to do. They always like stood out to me heavily. And Giamatti was like, I loved him from private parts. He was like probably the best part of private parts. And yeah, uh, yeah seeing him come in was, uh, it was great. I really think that was the beginning of the Paul Giamatti that everybody knows right now. And then also like after I met Judah, yeah. I was like looking up films that he was in. And he played the cameraman in the movie, you know, the movie version of Starsky and Hutch. Yeah. And I saw Starsky and Hutch and him playing the cameraman. And then he was also in a movie called Wet Hot American Summer. Summer, yeah. Which I think was later made into a TV series for Netflix. It was, yeah. Or Hulu, maybe, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was a great cast, you know. Yeah. You know, and you got what Sherry and, and and Robert are they like uh their directing team are they are they a, a, a couple or are they just two friends that do you know yeah they they were a team I think their husband and wife I believe. okay I know they later did a movie called Nanny Diaries yes and and then you know as I said Giamatti later went into I think he did Sideways. I think he did Million Dollar Baby with Clint Eastwood. Yes. A few other films. Lady in the Water. And then I think he was also in Big Fat Liar. Yes. Because yeah, it was around the time Splendor came out. He was in Big Fat Liar where he ripped off some kid and then yeah. kid poured a blue dye in a swimming pool. You know, Paul Giamatti's character takes a swim and then he turns blue. Yeah. I remember that. That was a funny movie. Yeah. Yeah, that, I remember that because uh, for whatever, I think my, my brother and sister were at the age to see that. And like, I remember like Paul Giamatti was the saving grace of that film. Yeah. <laughs> Frankie Muniz didn't do it for me. Oh, anymore. come on. You didn't think Frankie Muniz <clears throat> was the best part of that. <laughs> I still don't think so. You know what I mean? I, I guess the one thing I love about American Splendor is especially yeah. since, you know, the uh, the big thing now is that every time you turn around, there's another comic book movie, superhero movie. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, there's American Splendor is probably, I think, one of the best comic book adaptations. I know a lot of people probably don't think of it that way, but when you have, yeah, uh, um, you have, uh, him narrating it and then you have Paul Giamatti playing him, I thought that was, because, I mean, the whole, whole, American Splendor comic book is about his life and and his you know way of looking at the world and having him doing the narration with Paul Giamatti playing him and then of course Judah Friedlander playing you I thought that was a very uh, innovative and and fun way of of bringing that kind of uh, comic book to life and and I think that it deserves a lot of respect especially with how they did the like drawings in the in the with live action yeah. and that was really good and then with Judah Friedlander um I also remember you know that he comes he, he does stand-up comedy yeah. and, there, and we get together every time we get together every time 
you know, he comes to Cleveland was about three or four times he made a trip to Cleveland. He would appear at hilarities for his stand-up act. It's a comedy club up on East 4th Street in downtown Cleveland. And whenever he's in town, he would go to thrift stores, flea markets. The one time he was in town, my church was having a rummage sale. And I took Judah there. And he found a few things, including stuff that I had donated, including a, cause like a, like a, like a school type cassette player yeah. that my grandmother used to use to play her books on tape before she passed away. And I had my name. I think I just wrote the name Radloff. Not my name, just Radloff because my grandmother used it in the nursing home. You know, before she passed, yeah, I'd get the books on tape from the library for her, and it was that particular. It was like what they call a telephone cassette player that they use in schools. Yeah, and Judah bought that at the church flea market when I donated it. You know, when we went there, and then from there we went to the flea market up at the Berea Fairgrounds, where I ran into a guy that I went to high school with. He was like selling stuff with his father. And I mean, the, the classmate's name is Michael. Yeah. And Michael Gorsmeyer, that is his name. And I was, I was good friends with Michael Gorsmeyer in high school. And him and his father had a booth set up at the Berea Fairground Street Market. He was, he was saying stuff like records and ceramics and stuff. And I introduced him to Judah and Judah, I think, was, I think he had bad records for sale and Judah was looking through. I don't think he bought anything from him because most of the records he wasn't interested in. But still we got, I, I did introduce him to a friend of mine and friend I hadn't seen in years, if you know what I mean. And yeah. I, had, I still haven't seen Michael Boris Meyer in years either, so I wonder what ever happened to him. But we were good friends in high school. I graduated from high school in 1977, by the way. Right and it just it was interesting because he, he liked going to thrift, thrift stores, and he told me that even when we first interviewed up at the Renaissance Cleveland. Yeah, I think comedian, you know, comedian. The majority, you know, some of your comedians come from some money, some of them don't. I think they learn to live on a budget. I think comedy is definitely one of those fields where you learn to live on a budget, so you would love thrift stores and secondhand stores that's i think that's cool they got that keepsake that you know that's very cool thing i i appreciate keepsakes like that so that's cool that he's got that in his collection yeah and then still i sort of credit american splendor in a way for judah friedlander getting on 30 rock yeah yeah because i mean a lot of people remember him from splendor rather you know because he was prominent in splendor playing me Compared to like other movies or TV, like Starsky and Hutch or Wet Hot Summer, a yeah. few others where he was only in a few scenes. But I sort of credit Splendor for him getting on 30 Rock, where he was a regular character. I'd agree. Outside of Giamatti, I think that Judah is the breakout character for sure. Yeah. I mean, he's such a lovable character. It, it, it fits well, you know. And now, then I'm going to have to go to IMDb because I still wonder whatever happened to Bob and Sherry. They're, I know they just did some Succession, an HBO show, so they're still working with HBO, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, they haven't slowed down a bit, it looks like. You know what I mean? They found family at the HBO people. and they, li- yeah. You know what I mean? Right, and I've also imagined, you know, because Harvey wrote enough material over the years. Yeah. Including stuff that Joyce Brabner did posthumously. Yeah. To put several movies together. And I've often imagined either a sequel to Splendor or a television series based on Splendor, you know, based on like some of the other stuff Harvey had done. And even like he even wrote like a series about a co-worker who had dealt with PS, you know, PTSD when he was in Vietnam. Yeah. And that would be a movie in itself. Yeah. yeah I know that he takes, Harvey takes a <clears throat> writing credit on the, on the, on the film. And I always assumed it was almost like based on characters by, but I think he was a little deeper, like a legitimate film writer, a script writer on it too. Yeah. As I said, he did enough material to do several movies, but then again, Joyce Grabner pretty much owns the rights to everything. And, she tends to be very, con- you know, very con- you know, confronting and very, and very aggressive, you know, very demanding, very con- confrontational, obsessive of the material, very eccentric when it comes to this. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Because Joyce is a very hard person to get along with. <laughs> and even some people from the movie didn't want to deal with her. Right. Yeah, I mean, I can kind of vibe with that was, you know, even in the movie, she comes off a little bit that way. And I'm sure they clean, polished it up to make her more friendly for the film. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that's one reason why I don't communicate with Joyce Brabner unless I have to. <laughs> yeah. Because of the, you know, the attitude she has. I mean, she always makes issue of my loud voice. Oh, really? One time they had a, they scheduled a screening of Splendor. Up at, up at the Peace, the Peace Park, which is basically the, next to the Coventry Road Library, up at the Coventry neighborhood. They're like, they're like a, like a street fair. They're dedicating Peacock Park, which is in front of the Coventry Yard building. Yeah. The Arabica Coffee House there, but now Grob Shop is there. And they did a dedication of Peacock Park back in 20, I think it was like 2013, I think. 2013 or 2014, I don't remember. Yeah. And Joyce made issue of my voice. And for some reason, Joyce and I never really got along. Yeah. And even when we were at Sundance, I mean, I, you know, Joyce basically wanted to keep me separate from her, Harvey and Danielle. Yeah. I mean, Joyce tends to be very bossy. Well, even yeah, even in the film, I mean, films always try to paint people in great pictures, and you even in the film you get an idea that you know she was just kind of a fan that seen that seen the magnitude of what it could be, came into the picture, and then kind of you know I wouldn't say manipulated a situation or anything, but almost kind of puppeteered what she wanted out of the situation. You know what I mean? And. Yeah, you went for the ride. her way or the highway, if you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. And Harvey went for the ride. Now, yeah. the, the younger girl, Danielle was her name? 
Danielle Batone. She I was. She's she, like I think she's like in her thirties now. I believe. Yeah, I think she was. Still, wasn't she doing comics too, or no? I think she might have. Yeah, and then Joyce did a comic called Real War Stories. Oh, jeez. Real horror I remember, stories. I remember posting to a Facebook retail group because I went to a Savers and they had like a bunch of copies of of Joyce Brabner's book Real War Stories. <laughs> on the shelf. Yeah. And I had to take a picture of it and post it to my page <laughs> and to the Facebook retail page. I can't believe how Savers ended up with a bunch of copies of Joyce Grabner's Neil War Stories first edition comic. That's where they were distributed from. That's where she got her deal from, Savers. <laughs> I'm sort of guessing, but it was like years after she published it. I don't know how Savers got all these first edition copies of it, but I got to think somebody must have snapped them up later on and sold them online. Yeah, probably. I mean, yeah, because she's still around those parts, right? And she get out of. Yeah, she's still, still living, still living on Overlook Road in Cleveland Heights. You know, the house that Harvey and Joyce bought back in the nineties. And she owns all the American Splendor and everything. She all pretty his much whole... controls anything having to do with Harvey Peacock. Yeah. Well. Controlling as Joyce Grabner is. I bet, you know, she, it's weird that it seems she's difficult because I feel like if she was almost easy to work with, there's so much new stuff that could be done with the, with the material, the content. They could reboot it. They could probably reboot American Splendor. For like a new time in a way, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, make it like, even though it's based on real stories. Yeah. I mean, they could like still set it in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but have a different cast or even move the time frame and change the names of all the characters. It would still be Harvey's story. Yeah, I mean... Like when they said, like the the year we did the, the the cancer year, the movie year, were those all the real issues, or was that just for the movie? Harvey did have lymphoma. Oh yeah, that yeah 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 that definitely. But like in the movie, they have like comic, like a graphic novel based off, based off of the cancer year. Then they have another graphic novel. Yeah, they based actually off. did do the cancer year graphic novel. Okay. I wasn't in that. It was just basically Harvey Joyce and people they were dealing with. Due to cancer, because Joyce had Harvey. Har- I remember when Harvey wasn't feeling well from the limp, you know, from the cancer. Yeah. And that was around the time that Harvey stopped going to bookstores and flea markets. Was when yeah. he had that first bout of cancer. Yeah. And from there, you know, he, you know, he was dealing with it for a couple of years, and then eventually he got over it. Then it came back a second time like around the time the movie came out. And then he died of can of the lymphoma came back around the time he died because how he died was he fell out of bed. Okay. Like a like fall fall out of bed and took a bump or he, I don't know, he fell apparently he must have died in his sleep and he fell out of the bed. Interesting. 
Well, so it, it, it eventually it came back. So the cancer that is celebrated that got destroyed in the movie eventually came back to get him, unfortunately. That sucks. Yeah, it came back to get him twice. I mean, I mean, it was like a minor flare-up in 03, like right, it was like right after we toured for the movie. Like right after when it went to New York and L.A., you know, in August of 03. I think it was like maybe September <laughs> or October. Yeah. Uh, cancer came back for Harvey. And then right before he died in 2010, it came back. Because Harvey hadn't been feeling well in the days before he passed. Yeah. If Harvey never passed away, where do you think he'd be at nowadays with everything? He'd still be writing books. Yeah. I mean, Harvey would still be writing books until the day. I mean, just like in 2010, he was writing till the day he died. Yeah. Because he was like in the middle of a story when he passed away. And I think Joyce Grabner eventually finished it. Yeah. I mean, we we really could have got it. If he was still kicking it, dude, we probably would have got a TV show because the content, the material is perfect. Yeah. Or it's like, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's like married with children without being married with the children. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, Harvey would be 83 years old if he were still alive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Joyce is like in her late 70s, early 80s herself. Yeah. Think- Joyce is around Harvey's age. So no, no, knowing Harvey so well, you think Paul Giamatti did a bang-up job, an exceptional job? He did an excellent job with Harvey Peacock. Yeah. Now, Harvey always comes off kind of like a grumpy, unhappy dude. Was that more of a shtick? Yeah, I mean, basically kind of- how I've seen it, I've always seen this observation with the, with the American Splendor movie. Harvey always took a pessimistic side to things, while I always took the optimistic side. And there have been a lot of people that have seen the movie. They liked my character better than Harvey's character. Yeah. Not. Harvey's character reminds me of like a like a Charles Bukowski character a little bit, you know what I mean? Yes. It'd be interesting to see. I mean, he always called himself a curmudgeon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Well, I mean, I think the thing that works really well is the fact that because he was so pessimistic and you're so optimistic. I mean, the dual, uh, I mean, the yin yin and yang, so to speak. I think that that's. I mean, that was one of the things I loved in the movie was the fact that you know you guys were friends and you guys had uh, you know very different ways of looking at the world, but we're still yeah. friends, which is true with a lot of friendships that, uh, yeah. and I really liked that. I thought that was a good, uh, good thing. Yeah. Cause I knew that, you know, both Harvey and Joyce have dealt with depression. Mm. And sometimes that reflects in the stories that are in the comic book. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And then Harvey, I think went through two or three divorces before he met Joyce. Yeah. Yeah, depression and mental health is such a huge... I think everybody deals with it. It's such a big thing now. Like, I, I could I could see American Splendor being like an animated Netflix show, you know what I mean? Like, there, or there's HBO so much... Or Max can... show, you know. You know maybe, or maybe HBO Max, because yeah. HBO put out the film. And so it could be like... If it were to become a series, it would probably end up on HBO Max which will become just max next yeah. month. 
Did Harvey ever but comment? Apparently, they're merging HBO Max with Discovery Channel screening and Warner Brothers screening. You're streaming, so it's just going to become Max. Yeah. Oh. Well, that everything's because you know it's all going to be one. I think he, he, what uh, WWE just got bought by the same company that owns EC uh, UFC, so that's yeah. it's kind of corporation world. Corporation world. Mm-hmm. Did, did Harvey ever comment on um, his opinion of every, the sh- catching on? You know, it's it's kind of like when you're when you're near that. You know the glasses half empty type of vibe, and then positive things start happening. It's funny you'll see people that are kind of like gloomy, but positive starts happening, and it's like a weird thing in their like personality. Kind of. Did you see? Right, as I said, Harvey saw the glass half empty. I saw the glass half full. And although Harvey had already denied it, yeah. I still think that the Letterman shows have helped his career. Although Harvey kept keeps denying it. He keeps putting the books out. Yeah. The movie deal had been made. The movie had been a success in the way it is. I mean, it was never a true Hollywood blockbuster, but it did well as far as an indie film, even though it was fine cinema. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big deal. Like, that was a time, that was kind of. Like I said, when I started making films, and it was a time when, like, uh, more artsy films were kind of getting. Like, you'd have your Hollywood films, but the RT films were coming into play, and that was definitely one. Uh, and it was, yeah, I, I loved it. Now, you got, to, you got to spend a little time on set with it. What was that like? It, it was good. I enjoyed working with the cast. Yeah. And you were coming from, of course, the Killer Nerds film before this. Yeah, because I made Killer Nerd in 90, wow. and I made Ride a Killer Nerd in 91. Yeah. Yeah. And from there, you know, I sort of like took a break from showbiz for a while, mainly because one, I was dealing with issues, and two, you know, you know, Wayne and Wayne and Mark were having creative differences. Yeah. We went on to do Girlfriends, which is basically a a lesbian love story. And then I got back with Wayne in '99. To do town. Yeah. Because sometimes, you know, like Wayne was the creative end, and Mark Bosco basically took care of business. And sometimes Mark Bosco and I have had differences. Yeah. Well, it's tough and to be business. That got in the way with Wayne and Mark's you know, relationship with making movies together. And that ended after Girlfriend. Yeah, it's tough. You know, business can be tough in creative endeavors, you know what I mean? But there's there got to yeah. be that part, unfortunately. Yeah. I heard that there might be a, maybe a third venture into uh, Killing Nerdville, maybe. maybe. Yeah, we're talking about it, but as I said, you know, I, would be, I won't be as acting as... I mean, Wayne is still thinking about it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But I would, I would not be like... I would be like Harold Kunkel at this age, 65 years old, but I'd always imagined imaging a killer nerd with a much younger person playing Harold Kunkel. Yeah. You'd have to do a son of killer nerd type vibe to keep with the brother. Yeah, that was one thing, because I had people thinking, thinking about making 
movie scripts and sequels to Killer Nerd, though it's been 33 years since I did the first Killer Nerd. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, anybody out there who's never seen the Killer Nerd films, go check them out. I know Troma released them a while back. I, I yeah, and then I Wayne see. Allen Harold bought the rights back from Troma, and they were issued on Blu-ray and VHS. Oh, okay, word. Yeah, that, that's cool that you got the rights back, because I've heard, yeah, I heard. Yeah, and we made something like 500 limited edition Blu-rays, and maybe like 100 or two, maybe like 100 Limited limited edition VHSs of each movie. That's good because if if you know, I've heard Troma isn't the easiest people to get your film back from, and uh, without the permission and what without the rights to be able to do it, you really there's nothing you can do. So that's great they got the rights. Right, because it was like I think it was like right after we, like right after we went to a horror movie convention in Hackensack, New Jersey, back in 93. This was, you know, at Farley Dickinson University. Yeah. And I was driving, I managed to drive my piece of crap Thunderbird all the way from Cleveland over almost all the way to New York City. Yeah. The Hackensack's across the river from New York City. And we stayed at this Best Western Hotel there. I'm just fortunate the car made it there and back without overheating. Oh yeah. Because I was having a little trouble. I was like, you know, I was having a little trouble with that car at the time. But I just, you know, managed to get it there and back. But then again, around the time, I was like handing killer nerd buttons out to everybody going to this convention. And then there was like another time where I was sort of fooled, if you know what I mean. Yeah. At that convention, there was a guy carrying a camera. Like, it was a VHS camera. Like, you know, it was not a professional one, but it was like a consumer-grade VHS camcorder. It happened to have an MTV sticker attached to it, and I honestly thought that it was somebody from MTV doing a, you know, doing a spot about the convention and knowing that I was there as the killer nerd. I had honestly thought that they were going to film me. I did approach the cameraman, but then again, the cameraman started using choice words toward me, if you know what I mean. Really? Yeah, he was asking me, like, sexual questions and stuff. Jesus. Which meant that he wasn't from MTV. Yeah, it's from Howard Stern. <laughs> and I did explain to him how I was on MTV in the late 80s and that led to Killer Nerd. Yeah. But I mean, I honestly thought that he was with MTV because of what I, because that camcorder right. he was holding. But he actually worked for a, I think he actually worked for a public access cable show in New Jersey. Okay. He can't even air those questions on his own show, that animal. <laughs> right. And I think he might have turned on the camera without even putting a tape in. I have little faith in this person. I don't, I don't, I don't. Yeah, the, the, that, because Wayne was sort of warning me about it. Okay. I honestly thought that it was actually somebody from MTV. It you, look, 
you looking to do I know you had that that's kind of a foul experience. I'm sure it was just a, a small one in a in a rather good weekend, but you looking right, to do it was, I mean otherwise it was just a, a, a regional show. Yeah. It's almost like say if somebody from M T V were to come to Cinema Wasteland in Strongsville, Ohio. Yeah. With a camera saying M T V on it. It'd be the same thing. We need, we need more uh, with with everything slowing down with the COVID and stuff. Hopefully, we got more conventions popping up. We need to see Toby at more conventions. Yeah, I know I'm going to be at Cinema Wasteland in I think it's going to be in October up at the Best Western in Strongsville, Ohio. Hell yeah! You got a booth I remember up there? It's late September, early October, but they usually have one show in the spring and one show in the fall. Yeah, very cool. How's Ohio for a, a horror audience? You know, I know they're they're the, you know, I know they got they, they always got the juggalo gatherings over that way. I know big yeah crossover. Mm-hmm. Ohio is the spot. I like Ohio. We were in Indiana, which was close enough a couple mm-hmm. a couple years ago, and uh, it worked. It worked. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, Amer- as far as twenty years of American splendor, my God, twenty years. And uh, I don't know if it's got any, if they're giving it an anniversary 4K or anything like that. They definitely should. Yeah, I don't know. If H, I mean, they, I know on, H, they need to release it on, I know you can watch the movie on HBO Max. Yeah, it's on HBO Max. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if they did like a 20th anniversary Blu-ray of it. That'd be cool. But then again, people are getting away from buying physical media altogether. Yeah. And like like Netflix is discontinuing mailing DVDs. I've seen that. I didn't even know they still did that. Right, because I I was a customer of them since two thousand five. Yeah, and I still get DVDs in the mail from them. Very basically, cool. I get the disc, I would rip a copy of it for myself, and then mail it back. I support that. I remember, like at one point, they were. Uh... You had to like choose whether or not you want to do the mail or you wanted to do the digital. I do it both. Yeah. They wanted to split the two companies, yeah. but they decided to keep, they call the disc version DVD.com. And this is like the 25th anniversary of Netflix mailing DVDs. And this is, and they're deciding that they're going to end this in September. I wonder how I wonder how popular the the mailing of I know you said you do it, but I wonder how popular it is of mailing them out. I think they're down to like one and a half million customers for the mail DVDs when it used to be like sixty million at its peak. I remember when Netflix, like Redbox, came in and put a hurting on Netflix because you could just go to the gas station and get the movie or grocery store. And or even grocery Redbox store, yeah. is shutting down a lot of their machines. And then the digital is, it's funny because like digital kills Redbox. Redbox kills mail in Netflix, but then it comes back for like the revenge to kill it in the overall. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Netflix killed Blockbuster, if you know what I mean. So sad. Uh, the video store, uh, so great, dude. The video store was it. Uh, so streaming sad. killed the video star, if you know what I mean. Exactly. You got that right. Streaming killed, streaming killed the video star. Streaming yeah. killed the video star. I want to get you into the studio, man, and record streaming killed the video star. Video yeah. Store. 
Because it's legit. Mm-hmm. It's horrifying, but it's legit, and it was so fun though, going into the old VHS rental store back. And I got a feeling that eventually the studios are no longer going to make physical DVDs or movies. Yeah. I think so. Once they figure out a special features thing, which you can easily do, we do it on our Patreon. We offer special. So if we can do it, they can do it. And then once they figure out a way to do extras, extras with the movie, it's over. Yeah. It's done. Right. Right, because that's the thing with the DVDs is the extras. And as yeah. I still think, I still have a feeling that HBO video will probably put a 20th anniversary version of Splendor because that disc had never been released to Blu-ray. Yeah. And it is, in August would be the 20th. I think like, I'm trying to think, August would be the 20th anniversary of the theatrical release. And I think it was like February to March of 04. That the DVD came out, the, yeah. the tape and the DVD came out. You know, if we were living in an age of physical media, still as much as we'd like to be, you would probably have gotten an American Splendor graphic novel. Like I have a graphic novel of the movie. I think it is. It's like that big. You could have mm-hmm. got the DVD or the Blu-ray or the 4K disc in a yeah. book. You know what I mean? There's so much cool. There's so many cool things you can do with marketing and like special editions with stuff like yeah. that. It's unfortunate to see it all go away, and it probably will. Yeah, yeah my last sip of cold coffee. <laughs> <laughs> cold coffee's my fave. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we're we're approaching our cold cup of coffee too. You know what I mean? This was a good yeah. time, Toby. Man, I, a- I mean the October of my years, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I'm with you, man. Yeah. I'm with you. Well, Toby. It's always a pleasure having you on the show, man. It's great. Yeah. Every time I see you, man, I love seeing you. It's great. Good to see you. Yeah, I love seeing you too also. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Glad and, to take uh, part today. Yeah. You know, if anybody out there hasn't seen American Splendor, now is the time to see it. Go see it. You'll love it. And, and Killer Nerd and Bride of Killer Nerd peep in you too. And, and Proud My favorite documentary of all time, Genuine Nerd. Go, go, yeah. go grab that yeah, up. That's- yeah, I mean, as I said, genuine nerd, you got the scene from Aberration Boulevard where I'm in a diaper, and that was a movie that Wayne and you know, Aunt Wayne ended up scrapping because it came out around the because you because this was around the time that I was working on Splendor, yeah. and I did not want people to get any ideas. That's why I decided not to do any more baby or diaper roles on a movie. Yeah. I dressed as a baby. I dressed as a New Year's baby in one MTV segment that didn't air. Yeah. This was up at Chapel Hill Mall in Akron, Ohio. And then there was another one where I was dressed as a baby in Killer Nerd. Yeah. They dressed me in a baby again as Aberration Boulevard where a prostitute is paid to change my diaper. And that's on the genuine DVD, but it did not, but Wayne decided not to do Aberration Boulevard, where it's a movie about it more eccentric, similar to Towns. Yeah. But the other scene involved me and a donkey, and that's another embarrassing scene, which is another reason why Wayne scrapped it. Wow. We got to bring you in for like a killer nerd screening. You, Wayne, and it'll be fun. Do a QA, it'll be fun. That'd be good times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Toby. 
Always a pleasure, man. Always a pleasure. Hey. You know what I mean? We'll yeah. talk to you. We'll talk to you soon. You have a good day over there. Okay, and have a nice night. You too. Talk soon, and let me. If when you need moving stuff, I'm not. I'm not BSing, dude. I'm ready. I'm down. It'll be a fun trip. It'll be a and fun trip. Keep me, keep me in touch too. Okay, we'll be, we'll get you back on some more shows, and we spent Christmas and yeah. Let me know next. Let me know next time you do a show. Absolutely, sir. Absolutely. I thank you very much, man. Okay, have a nice day. Ah, right, you too, Toby. Talk soon. All right, thanks. Bye. Right, bye. 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 And ladies and gentlemen, that was our great friend Toby Radloff stopping in at the Boombastic headquarters to talk to your boys, Alexander Machi, about you know a, a bunch of different things. You know, we had some physical media talk up in there. We had some killer nerd. Ride a killer nerd. We talked about the MTV stuff, but mainly we got into American Splendor. Why? Turns 20 this year, 20th anniversary. Um, again, I got to say, if you've never seen American Splendor, it's on HBO Max now for Frizzle. If you have the subscription, definitely check it out and peep it. I think you'll dig it. Paul Giamatti at some of his best. Yes, Alexander. Also, also, I mean, it's turning 20 now. Wait one more year. It'll be 21. You can take it out drinking with you. My goodness. You stopped my talking to add that input. My <laughs> goodness. That was horrifying. Hey, hey, hey. Come on. That's what you have me on. I'm you're lucky, you're you. lucky I love you, bruv. You're lucky <laughs> I love you, bruv. Hey, hey. When I got a joke, I got to throw it in. But Toby's the man. I love Toby. Ever since the first time I chatted with him a few years back, he was on another show. I think the Shock Treatment Show on the network. Uh, for anybody out there, I believe Shock Treatment episodes are still roaming. So on the audio podcast, Ways, if you go look up a show called Shock Treatment with Mel and Maddie, uh, episode The Genuine Nerd with Toby Radloff. There's also a good Alex Hawk interview near that, too. Um, but, yeah, that's that. if you want to get a little, learn a little more about that and still support the Boombastic Meads, that's a way to do it, you know what I mean? But, uh, yeah, Toby's the man. Toby's going to be in the upcoming Wicked Hollows film, which is great. And uh, I would love to get Toby out here for a screening. I know this year we're going to be getting back into some of our events. Teaser for everybody out there. Um, And as you've got this episode, it'll probably be even closer to events. But it'd be cool to bring in that, bring to a nice screening and bring in Wayne and Toby and do that whole deal. Because Killer Nerd is one of my favorite shot on film. Uh, shot on video horror films of all time. I'd probably say Redneck Zombies and Killer Nerd are it. You know what I mean? I mean, there's a couple other ones in there, but those ones always popped in my head right off the bat that I love. And I love Toby. It's hard not to love Toby. The sweetest dude. So generous with his time. And it's always a pleasure having him on. And uh, we got many more stuff to do with Tobe, including moving. We're starting a moving company, and we'll be killing it. Like I said, four years of moving furniture during the summers, brother. And I if you never need to move furniture, Mister Matthew Fisher is the man for you. He's got the looks. He's got the height. He's got the muscles. He's got it all, ladies and gentlemen. So you know. Again, I know Tobe's not here, but Tobe, if you're listening, much love, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Alexander Hawk, much love to you, my brother. You know, always a pleasure. And uh, for everybody out there listening, much love to y'all. We got nothing but love for you, baby. 
Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, go check out more of these episodes for free wherever you listen to this one. If you want to support the cause a little deeper, we got the Boombastic Streaming Patreon page. That's right, Boombastic with two O's streaming at patreon.com. On there, you can catch, you know, I know once a month right now you're catching this episode for free in the video form, but every Boombastic episode you'll be able to catch for free in the physical form on the Patreon and the nice first perk ever, $5 perk, very nice. Uh, all our podcasting stuff where you catch all our podcasts in video form, uncut video form, and all types of other goodies. And if you go up to that $10 peer, we call it a peer, not a tier, because you look off, you cover the top of your forehead so you can see further, and you go, yeah, $10 brings in a lot of our film uh, stuff. We got 20 films in the digital up there for you to peek at your leisure, and uh, the tiers go up higher, but... Those are the ones to go with. And uh, we got nothing but love for you. You know what I mean? We're not pushing We're not pushing no Patreon, y'all. We're not pushing no Patreon, y'all, folks. If you want to join up, join up. A lot of cool stuff. Um, I would tell you right now that the 420 episode just got up there. But by the time you guys get this, 420 is probably a few months back. But, <laughs> it's still, but it still should be there. So go take a peek. And uh, it will be there. What am I saying? Um, but for Shizzle, a lot of a lot of kudos stuff. Alex, you want to say anything in closing about Tobe or American Splendor? Oh, not uh, pretty much. I, I said everything. Just like uh, I, what like I said before, American yeah. Splendor. I think is I I know when they did like the um, Angley Incredible Hulk. A lot yeah. of people gave uh, gave uh, kind of. You know, issues because, you know, they did the kind of like the panels and all that to make it feel more like a comic book. Um, that kind of style, I think, was a lot better utilized in American Splendor. It's different, a different style, but with bringing in with different um, illustrated uh, versions of Harvey Peacock, where, you know, his future wife shows up and he's in the different places in the uh, in the uh, bus station waiting for her yeah I, I really loved that style and and the fact that it's definitely a film that you know yeah it doesn't have explosions you don't have anyone in capes but it is it is a movie based on the comic book and the comic book was this guy's life. And his yeah. and the trials and tribulations he went through, and that's why people gravitated towards him because it was a slice of Americana. And as Toby said, you know, he was a pessimist, and he always looked at the world as half uh, half empty. Yeah. And sometimes I think the way that we as as a society can kind of look at the world in a better light is to see it. From light of someone who actually has even a darker uh, view of the world than you do, then you can see that you know things might not be as bad as you think. I mean, look at Harvey Peacock. I'm not doing as bad as he. <laughs> Harvey Peacock, yeah. Harvey Peacock was, you know, I think people love him because, like, uh, even though he's a kind of a grumpy figure, I think like he reminds me of uncles I have. You know what I mean? I think that. 
I think there's a place for the, the, the glasses half empty people. You know what I mean? Um, who's to say if they're right or wrong? You know what I mean? But uh, I definitely do feel like everybody's probably got a Harvey in their life. And that's why you're so easy to kind of fall in line with appreciating him in the film. Because kind of like, well, I would want to be around a mopey dude or whatever. But it's like, yeah, he's got the mopiness to him. But there's something else there. You know, there's some, the, the personality uh, is there. And it's kind of makes it makes it the overall deal, you know, which is very cool. Toby Radloff, man. I love him. I tell you, every time we got him on, I can't stop saying how much I love that dude. He's great. Yeah, I think, I think, I think uh, this is now his, let's see, fourth time on a episode that uh, we have been involved with. I mean, yeah. you got shock treatment, you got this one, and you got two uh, Christmas episodes. Yeah, two Christmas specials. He's become a staple in the Christmas deal. He's the staple that holds the wrapping paper to the actual gift. To be truthful with you, you know what I mean. But, he's the Scott's tape. Nah, he's a good man. He's in the hollow. Classic uh, person. We got. He holds it all together, baby. He holds it all together. You know what I mean. So you know. With that being said, we thank y'all for listening. Uh, we appreciate it, and we'll catch y'all on the next episode of the Boom Bastic K. Hey. Hey.